I got started coming to life when I was on house arrest and I was only allowed to be out of the house for one hour for religious freedom. And I chose to come to life and was going steadily. Me and Kristen and I uh, started a relationship again and uh, I made it clear to her how important it was for me to continue going to life. We were living together and hearing the Word of God and we wanted to be married and have our relationship on the right foot and uh, that led into uh, a mentor relationships and a mentoring. So we decided we were going to do marriage counseling. Um, we went to the help desk. They got a hold of Steve. Steve linked us up with the Drapers and they graciously welcomed us into their home. You know, so many couples like that, like role models for us. Um, you know, the Drapers being one of them. Um, and they were very honest and vulnerable about a lot of things also and that kind of helped ease our minds with, with you know, how are we gonna work through things and, and you know, how, how should we behave, you know, in certain situations. I think if God didn't bring us back together to where we are right now, we probably, our family wouldn't be together the way it is at all. That it was entirely God's way to bring us back together and to, to bring us to Indiana in general and to bring us back together in a relationship that was entirely God's doing. Yeah, the, the church has impacted my life and how, you know, there's all these different uh, people that have come around me to hold me accountable and um, people that I can reach out to and any time that I'm, if I'm going through a hard spot in my life and I need somebody to talk to, there's always, you know, a list of guys that I can reach out to and like that's, that's like super important for, for just everybody, you know, and that's, that's not something that I've had any other time in my life. We've grown a lot, but we're certainly not perfect and We'd like to be, for those people, we like to invest in other people like how others had invested in us when we first came. Well, good morning, everybody. That uh, was a little video of a couple, Dylan and Kristen, who have been uh, attending our church for a couple of years and obviously some reasons there why they got started that are kind of fascinating. And uh, they would say this, that if the church wasn't operating healthy with intent, their lives would be drastically different and not in a better way. And so today we want to explore a conversation about why the local body of believers still matters today. All right, so the end of this is going to be a good conversation about the church, but we're going to go in through a side door, and so I need you to kind of stay with me on this. Uh, recently, you have, if you have been paying attention to the news, have seen that our fair city has been given a distinction as the safest city in the state of Indiana. It's crazy. Uh, I told Scott Holliday before service, like six, you've been out of here for a year, and we're already the safest city. I don't even know where you go from here. <laughs> so the safest city in the Indiana, which is the 12th safest state in the United States, 
That's unbelievable. I mean, it is great to live in a city without honor. But did you also know this, that most experts believe that this is the safest time to ever have been alive. This is the safest, most peaceful time in the existence of the world. There are less violent crimes, there's less war, there's more peace. We're smarter, richer, and freer than any other time in human history. And when I say that what I'm not doing is diminishing, uh, look, there is pain and problems amongst us. I'm, I'm not just looking over the complexity of life where real tragedy happens, but I'm saying that in general, we are safer than what it may appear. So safest city, safest time to be alive. How you doing with that? Like, do you believe that? Let me ask it this way. Do you feel that? Do you think that? I'm going to make a great speculation today and say I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. I think that we are more motivated out of fear than we are out of living in the luxury of being in the safest city in the safest time to ever have been in existence. And so I want to answer the question of why. And there are lots of reasons why, but there's an idea that that also affects the church that I want to get to. I'm going to bring in this term called globalization, right? And it's not a word that I just made up. I'm notorious for making up words. I didn't make that word up. Globalization is this process where we integrate and interact with people across the globe. It's cultures meshing together from around the world, and it very much can be a good thing. And in this day and age, in our connectedness via social media and the internet, we have all of the world at our fingertips. We can talk to people that are far, far, far away in a moment. We can interact with people on the other side of the globe as if they are in the room. We know everything that is happening in every little region of the world because of our 24-hour news cycle. And listen, that can be a good thing. It can be helpful in lots of things. But when you take that idea of globalization and it meets up with a fallen, depraved humanity that is broken in our sin and disobedient, absent from a full, flourishing relationship with God that we once had, leaning towards our own selfishness and not towards God and others, that's what Scripture says about us, is that we are broken and in need of rescue and need of new hope. When you intersect that kind of fallen humanity with the access to globalization, lots of unfortunate things happen most of which are not for our flourishing as image bearers. And so I, I want to go through this as quickly and as concisely as I can because I want to get to the church, but I want to set it up really well. So here's, here's what we have. If we could go back to Genesis, which I love to do. Back in Genesis, what, it is, what is it that Adam and Eve are wanting that they don't have? They want the knowledge of good and evil. They want to be omniscient. They want to be all-knowing. They are not settling in this great identity as sons and daughters of God, image bearers of the holy God. They want to be God. And our God will not be mocked. And in their sin and disobedience, all-out chaos 
happens, and it still happens today. But listen, we humanity have never stopped wanting to be omniscient, all-knowing. Even today, we want to be all-knowing. Even today, we want to be self-sufficient. Even today, we want to be present everywhere, always. And so listen to me. Only God gets to be omniscient. And it's not because he's holding out on us. It's out of his love. Only the divine creator that has existed from the beginning and will never cease to exist can handle knowing everything about everything. You and I, humanity, it destroys us. It destroys us. But as the offspring of Adam and Eve, we are still fighting this today, that we want to be omniscient. We want to know everything. And listen, Google doesn't help us in this. Because we got a God in our pocket that can create the illusion that we know it all. And I'm not knocking Google. I use it. And so you've got a people who are broken that are craving to be all-knowing. And in that brokenness, they bend towards selfishness, towards greed. All right, you got all that? Because here we go. So now you've got a greedy humanity that has figured out that they can profit and excel through selling fear to humanity. I can create money by selling you fear. You remember Y2K? Look that up, Google it. Well, probably shouldn't say that. And here's the thing. You don't need anybody to convince you that something's wrong because sin has already done that. You know that you're lacking. You know it. And so it is easy for me to create fear inside of you. And with our desire to know all, and with our tangible ability to be connected and globalize with all the things of the world, I can know everything that is need needed to be known about some Olga that lives in a small Polish village. And so when you have that, all you have done is created a weapon that the enemy can use for destruction and undue grief and self-promotion. Today, we can know all the bad and all the horrors of the whole planet. We know all the murders and the mass murders, all the plagues, all the disease, all the wars, all the brokenness in this world. And we eat it up because we bend towards knowing all. And all that does is serve to create a bigger market for our media to sell it to us. And listen, I, I feel it too. I'm not saying that I don't Every time my little girls leave my sight, there's a part of me that thinks somebody's going to take them. Somebody's going to harm them or hurt them. And so when I hear safest city in the safest time to be alive, it all rings hollow in me because everything that I feel and think convinces me that we're on the verge of breaking, that somebody is waiting to harm me or take from me. So maybe you now understand a little bit more why my wife went to get her degree in mental health counseling for me. I have great hope in God, but I would be lying to say that that's not there. And so let me turn this conversation a bit, and let's get into Scripture. We're going to go to the book of Acts here. We talked about this last week. I'm going to use this for a better understanding. In Acts 17, this is about God. He says, or this is about God. Luke writes this, and he, God, 
made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And so what we have here is this idea that God placed you in this time, in this boundary, in this period, with these people for his purposes right now. And what can rob us of the flourishing of that is, is that we are so focused on everyone else and everything else that is not whom or where God has placed us. Our wanting to be all-knowing mixed with globalization has led you and me to be everywhere else but here. Our fears to be produced from everywhere else but here, compelled to know about everyone else and not deeply those who are near us. And so let me bring the church into this. The same mixture of globalization and human brokenness and sin has created a real question if the local church is still necessary today. As we have forged ahead as society to create our own little kingdoms, our own little personal brands, so we can feel good by people liking and commenting on our stuff, as we Christians have the access to be at any church via the internet that we want to, to listen to any profound teacher and pastor, to listen to the best music and musician that the world could offer us. We have at the tip of our fingers the best of the world. We have a voice that can be heard on a global stage to speak of injustices and corruption and listen, I'm not knocking any of those things because I listen to podcasts too. But as a result, we have grown dissatisfied, disconnected, and disillusioned to the places and the boundaries and the people that God created us and planted us with. We have created global illusions of fellowship and connectedness, justice, all the while forgetting the flourishes, the flourishing of being connected to believers in our own time and space, that there are things as believers that are required of us in this local context for the glory of God, and listen, for our joy. And so I know that I'm saying this to a room full of people that are here at church, and you're here because at some varying degree that you believe it's important to be in this room. But I know that there are many around us in our families, in our workplaces that don't see the local church or the need for the local church as something necessary or even understand that it's necessary or right by God. And so we want to spend the rest of our time here together and our time today rightfully understanding what the church is and the need and the role of that church. We're going to look specifically back in Acts 2 and Acts 4 to look at the early church at its best. We know from stories like Dylan and Kristen, that the church still works today, that God is still moving in his church. And so let's open up to Acts 2. We're going to start in verse 42, and then we're going to go right into Acts 4. And so here's a little setup. This is after the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He's appeared to over 500 people. He's with them in Jerusalem, and during that time, he ascends to heaven. The believers stay in Jerusalem. They're told to stay there until the Holy Spirit descends onto the earth. That event's called Pentecost. 
And in that event, there are many signs and wonders. People turn their hearts to faith in Jesus. And the early church continues to build itself up in the area of Jerusalem. But then it's attacked by a zealous lawkeeper named Saul, who scatters the church by, for God's purposes. That same Saul that would become the prolific Apostle Paul. And here's what was recorded about the earliest church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then in Acts 4, it records this about the fellowship of believers. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon all of them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's the early church. That's the early church. They had no building, not at least what we consider to be church today. First century Christians were heavily persecuted and often contested aggressively, and as a result, they often met secretly in other believers' homes. And so understand that the church has always been the people. It's never been the buildings. Fellowship, worship, and ministry are all conducted by people, not by buildings. We, you and I, the body of believers, are the church whom God loves, a unique group of people with gifts and talents that have been redeemed by God for God. Church buildings facilitate the role of God's people. It does not fulfill that role. And as the influence of Christianity grew, believers began to erect buildings devoted to worship. And that's how we've gotten to the place where we are today, where church is synonymous with buildings. But make no mistake, you and I, God's people, have always been the church. We are the church, his body of believers. And in these passages, there are very, some very specific things that these believers were doing that we still, in some ways, do today. And so when we notice the church, here are things that we notice that are practices of the early church. Right? They devoted themselves to godly teaching. Right? They just sat under the apostles' teaching. They would have not had the Bible constructed the way that you and I have it. But they were devoted to the Word, and it's super important that you understand who was devoted. They were devoted, individually, personally. And we know that because in Acts 2, it later says that they met together regularly. And so they devoted themselves to understanding what they believed, being faithful to the truth in their own lives, and then they met together to do the same thing. Each believer devoting themselves to do it. They remembered Christ through 
sacraments like communion and baptism. They were breaking bread together. That was done in remembrance of what we call the Last Supper, which created this sacrament called communion, where we eat of the body of Christ, like not literally, but just the bread represents the body and the, and the blood, not literally, but in the juice that represents the blood of Christ. I think I said blood twice. It is there for us to reflect on the work of Jesus and remember who I am, that as I take and share in the elements that I understand my identity and what I believe in. It also says that he shared and had all things in common. Like, if there's anything scary in all of this, it's this. Because if we're most honest, it sounds like that dreaded word socialism. Probably more of a theocracy with Jesus at the head. But still, what we define as possession and ownership did not exist in the early church. All share, all imparted gifts and efforts for the betterment of the whole, and all work together to be one mind in belief and thought and hope. And so that rightly assumed that they would be encouraging one another, rooting for one another to succeed, helping each other out, but they also would be holding each other accountable. You can't be of one. Can you, have you ever tried to be of one accord in something? So there's this accountability to each other that we're going to work this thing out. We're going to keep people together on the path. You need those things to be of one mind. They regularly met together. Common for them to come together and pray, to worship, to sing, to care, and reflect on God together. A corporate worship. Then lastly, we see them generously giving to all that have need. Barnabas sells his land and puts the money at the apostles' feet to do what they want with it. Now listen to me. This may sound like some bizarro world. Like, Steve, that's crazy talk. That God's church would be lived out so practically that it might mean that my safe space where I binge on Netflix might be shared with other believers. Even more than that, they may live there with all their germs and annoying habits. It's crazy talk to think that our retirement funds might be somebody else's health insurance. But as crazy as that sounds, listen, as the world turns up its assaults on Orthodox Christianity, there will be a place in time that the church will look more like this early church than it does this. I'm convinced, mainly because of Scripture, that in the future, before Christ returns, the church will look more like Acts 2 and Acts 4 than this. And it's not a scary thing. Because in that word, it said that great grace was upon them. God's favor poured out on them. And out of the overflow of their affection and love for one another, their numbers and their quality flourished. They multiplied. God added to their numbers day by day. So listen, Christian. This world is a train that is going to crash and burn. But for you, Christian, just be faithful. Just be faithful to the truth. We have a sure hope, a sure hope. He will keep us and care for us and walk with us. But listen, none of that happens for you and I. None of that happens for you and I. 
if we aren't faithful in the present to the people that God planted with us, to our allotted boundaries and periods, the world around you is pulling you from here. The world around you wants to be everywhere but here. They are propping up illusions of lots of things that are better and more fulfilling and flourishing inside of our time, space, and people. If we don't care more for our community, for our local church, not just this church, we love other churches, the Church of Wells County and the surrounding areas, if we don't care more for this place than we do for the world around us, there will no, be no group gospel identity. There will be no aroma to the world of redemption and weakness and humility. We will have no like-mindedness that roots for one another, that cares for one another, that hopes for one another. There are things that must be done in a local body because God compels us to, hopes us to. We have to be together working our salvation out. But many believe that the church is not relevant. That being a part of the local church isn't important. That you can be a Christian and not go to church. And I would say, maybe. And that I'm weak on that maybe. Is it smart? No. Because we fool ourselves if we think we've been towards worshiping God. It ain't natural for us. We are better lived in community. To claim to be a part of God's universal church, which means to be a Christian across the globe, a part of God's global church, to claim to be that without submitting to the local church is not plausible, biblical, or healthy. First, it's not plausible to imply that you can be a part of a greater community without first being a part of a local community is foolish. You can't be a part of Rotary International if you're not part of the local Rotary Club. You can't be a part of the universal human family if you're not first in a local intermediate family. And it's not biblical. Every time a letter is written in the Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, they are addressed to the members of the local church. All the letters are written to the church. They teach us how to get along with each other because we need that, how to deal with the weak in our congregation, how to do church effectively, how to deal with unrepentant sin in the church. They command us to submit to our elders, to pray for one another. All these things are impossible to do if we're not a part of God's local body of believers. And listen, most of us get this. But there are ways that we do church and be the church that matter. There are things that we need to lay down in order that we might be faithful to the church for what it really is and what it's really for. You know, most of us started coming to church because if you weren't raised in the church, most of us started coming to church because there was some personal conflict. There was some personal need in it, right? There was a personal benefit or a personal help to me, and that is good. Like, we're for that. But if we don't ever reroute ourselves back into the church where we make it far less about ourselves and more about God's heart, will, and love, 
All this will ever be is a Sunday matinee that is bent to your entertainment. And so let's talk about some movements that we prayerfully need to consider as the church moves forward in the future. And listen, none of this stuff is original to me. Lots of great Christians have talked about these ideas, and they will talk about them in the future. But four great movements that are necessary for our church today. Not just this church, but the church. Number one, we've got to move from satisfaction to sanctification. Now that sanctification word's a big word. It just simply means this. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more we should look like Jesus and less like myself. We should begin to resemble Jesus. God loves you. He loves me exactly where we're at. He just loves us way too much to leave us there. He desires to change us, transform us through his Holy Spirit as we submit and desire him above everything else in our lives. I understand that at some point you came here or wanted to be a part of something that was fun and satisfying, and I certainly hope that that's still the case today. But we far too often tend to make this about ourselves, and we ask questions like, how'd that music make you feel? Were the people nice to you? Did you like the crazy pastor? Did you like the coffee? And these are all me-centric ideas that we need to shift to be more about God and His glory and His name than our own. And so listen, listening to sermons and songs are, is great. They don't sanctify us. We've gotten to the place where the preaching of God's word has become more about emotional satisfaction than our God changing our habits and our attitudes. We want peace as a feeling, but we are less considered of whether or not I'm living peaceably amongst my people. We want joy as a feeling, but we're less concerned about the prayer and the effort that's involved in submitting to God and being content with what he gives us and who he's made us. Paul reminds us in Colossians, in chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. We have to look to him. This has never been about your happiness. This has always been about your holiness. Coming to church is about our pursuit of God and our abandonment of everything else. The second movement that is necessary is from individuals to the body. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes this about the beauty of the body. The church, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 
When you were baptized, if you were baptized, you were not just baptized into Christ. You were baptized into his body, into the community of saints. The local extension of God's body is here, our church. You are the body of Christ. We have oversold this idea of having a personal relationship with Jesus to the point of all we want to do is to do it personally. And listen, I am for personal relationships with Jesus. I'm not for doing them alone. It is not for his glory nor your benefit. Third movement is to move from emotion to mission. We have to move from from doing what feels right or being a part of something that feels good to doing the work that God is equipping us to do as part of his body, understanding your gifts and your talents and being faithful to him in that and to make his name known in your life because he has so deeply affected us. We have to find that mission and we have to pray that God moves our hearts, that he helps us to see our gifts and use them for his name and not our gain. And the last movement is this, is you must move from consumption to communion. You know, one of the things that Dylan and Kristen said in that video earlier is that they, both him and his wife, believe that they cannot forget the outpouring of God's grace and love to them that was given by the church, people investing in their lives. And now today, they are compelled to be the types of people that they had in their lives, in their weakness. Because it is okay in seasons to consume. There are seasons where we need consumption, seasons of issues and hardness, but we can't, can't stay there. We must commune together, which means this idea of common union, that we are united under Christ to help spur each other along, to love each other forward and repeat. And so here's where we go from here as a church. I think this is foundational. We need to challenge ourselves at the very motivations of ourselves on why we're at church. We need to challenge the notions of others and their belief that church isn't necessary. We must root ourselves at some point into churches where it's no longer about our consumption, our satisfaction, and our emotion. But it must be about service, sacrifice, and commitment for God and God alone. Most of the surveys that talk about church says that people who come to church end up establishing their church rhythms within the first three months of their attending. What we're asking you today to do is reconsider your habits, reconsider your emotions, to ask the hard questions. Namely, is it about me or is it about God through me? Is it about his body, about sanctification, about communion and mission? And let's pray for those things. Because here's the thing, we're gonna move towards Acts two and four. That's where the church is going, and that's where we're headed. I'm not asking you to sell your stuff yet, okay? So don't worry about that. 
but I am desiring to do this more authentically for his glory and for our joy and flourishing. And so would you be with me in this season as we pray? We're going to be, over the next few weeks, giving you opportunities to take next steps in your faith, in your church life, opportunities that might prove to be helpful for you. Would you pray with me? Father, you are abundantly good. You are forever at work. You are amazing. And you're alive and active today. And Lord, we are facing a great battle where the world has convinced us that everything else matters but the people around us. They have created a belief in us that we uh, should be concerned about everything else in this world but those who are around us. And so, Lord, I'm not praying that we don't know those things. I'm just praying that you would help us desire to want to live deeply with people in our lives that you have planted in our time, in our period, in our boundaries for your glory and for our joy. That, God, you might break our hearts to make this a little bit less about ourselves and a little bit more about you. And so, God, we just open ourselves to you today. Let your spirit move in our hearts. Help us to be obedient and pray that your spirit would come alongside of us as we move towards these new ideas. So Jesus, we love you, praise you. We pray this in Jesus' awesome name, amen. Hey, if you're in here today and and life is heavy, in this moment, if you are in need of prayer, just know our prayer team is up here as we worship this last song. Or You can come up here or you can go in our prayer room after service, even if it's for somebody else in your life. We'd love to pray for our people. So let's stand one last time here and worship our King.